and you're listening to Thinking Off Piste, a podcast sharing inspiring stories from adventurers around the world. Thinking Off Piste is brought to you by Maybe Ski, a Whistler-based adventure ski company creating bucketless ski trips across the globe. If you're looking to get off the beaten track and away from the crowds, head over to maybeski.com to discover what lies beyond your lift pass. Today I'm catching up with the Cornwall-based sailor and surfer Max Campbell. At the age of 20, Max sails single-handedly across the Atlantic Ocean to the Caribbean and back again. This inspired his current adventure. Max and a crew of his friends are on a mission to sail around the world. So yeah, how have you been? Good, yeah. Um, I just got back from four days in Tyrona National Park, which is... uh, big nature reserve to the north of where we're staying yeah in Santa Marta in the northern part of Colombia and it was really nice yeah we made some friends other friends with boats and we all sailed up there together and spent three days anchored in this big empty bay amazing um, totally empty like the the it's really interesting this there's this big area of land that's been sort of cordoned off as indigenous territory in the northern part of Colombia and you know there's no no one's allowed to build houses there's no developments at all so this there's this big vast expanse of like untouched jungle <laughs> and we were just anchored in the middle of it for, for yeah for a little bit and it was it was really really cool super Sounds beautiful so good like raw untouched beautiful landscapes yeah They're just scenic yeah. and there's did you say there's no one there at the moment um, the only people that really live, there's a few fishermen that camp out on the beach and then there's four indigenous tribes that, um, that live in small wooden thatched huts that you can see poking out from the hills. Um, That's so cool. Yeah, it's amazing. And they, uh, I mean, they don't speak Spanish. I mean, they, yeah, so they, they have their own language, so it's hard to really communicate, but it's, for me, it was the first time I've ever seen, um, like, this sort of indigenous culture, you know, that's almost untouched by Western civilization. Like, they know that, they know what's going on outside of this national park, but they've, just, they've made the decision not to yeah. want anything, it's want like any part of it. Conscious decision to do that. It must be so refreshing to watch them just go about their daily life and their routines as well. I don't know what their routines were, but things like fishing and the food, like what kind of dishes are you eating over there? Yeah, well, we, whilst we were in Tyrona, we were cooking on a fire on the beach every night. Like I, it's not, I don't, <laughs> we don't normally do that. It, very very occasionally but because there was a group of us too big to be anywhere else we would just start a fire on the beach and normally spend the day fishing and just all sort of share everything at the end of the day it was so nice actually um yeah like i'm just in awe at the beauty of colombia i think like the the jungle is amazing because there's these like vast expanses of really like untouched um, yeah, nature. And then also all of the people I've met have been super open and, um, yeah, it's been amazing. It's, it's, it's very different coming from the Caribbean, which is a completely different, uh, <laughs> yeah, totally different, but yeah, it's been great. <laughs> so is it like a really open culture sharing sort of ethos? It's actually very um, different to what you get 
in like maybe the UK or what was the culture like in general? Well, um, what's been really interesting about the trip is like the, this, the, the subtle changes that happen as you get further away from the UK. Um, (laughs) I mean, like we, so we started off and we went to Spain and Portugal, which is still Europe, but you know, there's like, feels really different. Um, and then across the Caribbean and like the, we spent a bit of time in the West Indies going south down through the islands. So St. Vincent and all the Grenadines and yeah. Grenada. Um, and yeah, just very, very laid back, super chilled out, just again, very friendly people. And then off the Caribbean arriving in Colombia and, and, and then you're in South America and that's again, like a totally different, totally different feeling, like lots of life and constantly switched on yeah Yeah. (laughs) going on around you like tastes and smells and sounds people are very open and very like uh yeah full of life and yeah it's it's cool have you seen much hurricane damage or anything like that being in such tropical places or is it all paradise at the moment yeah definitely really um not on this trip but Mm. before i've been in the caribbean before my old the sailing boat I used to have. Um, and there I was, I was in Dominica after Hurricane Maria, which was really bad. And then in St. Martin after Hurricane Irma. And these were two like, um, I think they were both like category five hurricanes, really, like really super destructive. And, um, it's terrifying. Yeah, it was almost unbelievable. I mean, these places are like paradise most of the year, but every now and then, I mean, every couple of years they get hit by these hurricanes and, um, yeah, St. Martin was really bad. I saw boats just on roads, you know, like, like wow. 50 meters away from the water, shipping containers just bent in half. Um, all the buildings were missing roofs and people were still cleaning up and like trying to piece back together their lives. It was really sad. Um, yeah. Did you speak to any of the locals or did you have a chance to communicate with any of them? I guess yeah. just to understand their story. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, um, um, I mean, what's really amazing about the the Caribbean, like these islands, is they all they have that like more than their fair share of natural disasters. I mean, they have the hurricanes, but then they have volcanoes and earthquakes and all. Like, it's <laughs> not fair at all. Um, yeah. But they all come together in times of crisis and that each island helps other ones out. And that's really nice to see. Like we were in St. Vincent a few months ago when the volcano erupted and 20,000 people were evacuated. Um, it was crazy. And I, I've never seen anything like it. There was this huge ash cloud and ash fell everywhere. And we were far away enough that it wasn't really... Um, Didn't hit you. Or a problem for us. Yeah. But I mean, we'd been there from we'd been there for a bit and all of our friends were there. And, um, I mean, we did what we could, but there's only, I mean, there's no way we could really help in that situation. But what we did notice is that there were boats coming from Antigua and Barbados and all these nearby islands offering aid. Um, and that's beautiful. Everyone in the nearby vicinity that could help was helping. And I think that's something really special about those islands is they, they all come together in the time of crisis to help. 
it's that united feeling such yeah. a wholesome thing as well that i guess we're so like we don't notice it in countries like the uk where we don't have these disasters but actually it's probably the most beautiful part of human nature which yeah. should really be resonated around more often i suppose that's crazy though so you were over there when they actually happened took place you saw the clouds what so were you in the boat at the time or well we were um that we, it was weird. It was super weird, the timing, because we had planned to leave on that day, to leave the country for, um, for a while. And as we were doing the customs process, like on a boat, you have to walk to the customs office and then they do, you pass through customs and immigration and they stamp your passports. Yeah. And, um, and that whole morning, there was a really weird vibe. And we knew that the volcano had been active for a few months. Um, and the night before the prime minister of St. Vincent and the Grenadines had ordered this massive evacuation, like 20,000 people from the North of the Island all left and pretty much the same time as our passports got stamped, the, um, the dome just erupted and this big ash cloud came up and we, it was a really overcast day. So we didn't really, we didn't really see anything, but yeah. later that evening, the, the clouds sort of opened up and we saw this huge pillar of ash. And then we woke up the next morning and the decks of the boat were covered in like a really fine, horrible, sticky dust. Wow. And we were far away. So, I, I mean, I was, it must have been horrendous for the people who lived closer to the, um, to the eruption because this volcanic ash is like, really really fine really really sharp and um yeah it was not very nice not very nice at all amazing that's terrifying though it makes you think like um my sister lives um in vancouver where there's an active um it's like in the earthquake zone so in like in school they're always doing the drills with like your safety pack under your desk and what to do if it happens climb under a desk that kind of thing and you always think oh it's good that they do that but you never want it to actually be put into practice and when you're actually there to witness it at the time it like blows your mind there's so much you can do to prepare for it but when it happens it's like all hands on deck preparation can only go so far it's just like how you look after it afterwards and the kind of support and aid you can provide afterwards and stuff like that which is crazy yeah and that's why the vincentians um i i'm not sure i, I th i'm pretty sure there were zero fatalities or if there was it was really very because that's they had, so good they they that volcano has been active for forever and they, there's been eruptions before so they had their they knew what to do and the drills they, were in place yeah everyone yeah. Everyone came together and yeah, it was. That's I mean, incredible. It was, it was it was difficult. I didn't really know how to feel about it because we were there on our boat. Obviously, super privileged, just sailed over, and we had the freedom to sail away. And we'd spent the last three months making like close friendships with a lot of people on the island. Yeah. And then this thing happens, and I mean, we had the freedom to just leave. So it was like. You feel like a pang of guilt was, at the same time but also yeah, very fortunate. Yeah. That's, that's very understandable. So was this on your former boat, the Flying Cloud, or is that Flying on? Cloud. No, this was, this was recently on, on Elixir, yeah. So tell me the story of Elixir, the boat that was meant to take you around the world. How did Elixir fall into your hands? Um, well, I guess it all started with Flying Cloud, which was this, my old sailing boat. And 
She is 22 feet long and made out of wood. So like um, uh, super small and not really the sort of boat that you would do long distance trips in. And, um, and yeah, I paid 500 pounds for her when I was uh, like 18 or 19. And then at like 20 left the UK and ended up doing a full Atlantic circuit, which is basically like uh, down to the Canary Islands and then across the Atlantic to the Caribbean and then back up and then back to the UK. And then off the back of that, I, I knew that I'd found this thing that I loved and it was amazing. And I wanted to continue doing it forever really, because that, that trip was so, so, uh, I mean, I learned a lot and had amazing experiences and came back to the UK with this sort of like clear idea that I wanted to, this time go all the way around the world, but share the experience with um, friends, you know, yeah. and people close to me. Not even, not even friends, just other people, because it seems silly to, to have that experience just to yourself. I yeah. mean, if there's something you love, you want to be able to share it in general as well. Like that feeling, the, the positive feeling and the vibe it gives you is just something that you want to carry with you and pass on. So it yeah. makes sense. Absolutely. Um, so I came back to the UK and then sold Flying Cloud. Or I started looking for a new boat because I wanted, obviously, she's 22 feet, which is tiny. Like, there's no way you can barely, it's not even really big enough for one person. Yeah. Um, so Need a bigger I needed, vessel. Something, needed something bigger. And my stepdad's a boat builder. Um, and there was this swan. Um, and a Swan is like a really renowned ocean cruising yacht, the sort of boat that you can sail around the, the world in yeah. an old, an older model. So like 50 from 1970 and basically hadn't been touched for about six years, needed a lot of work doing to it. Um, and yeah, I, I had, I didn't really have any money at the time. Um, but I managed to, we basically came to the agreement that we would go halves on this boat. And then um, I borrowed a bit of money. And um, uh, I mean, it wasn't so much the money, it was the time that I had to put in to like get this yeah. thing together. It was, it was basically a year of working full time and then investing all my money back into the boat and then like going down to the boatyard in evenings and weekends with a group of friends, like it wouldn't have been possible with all of my friends who came to help. There was like a group of us and, and we just spent this year just grafting basically in the boatyard um, and went from this like sort of green, rotten, mossy, um, just totally not functioning boat to replacing a lot of really important bits like taking everything off and putting on everything again. And yeah. Um, yeah, it was really hard. Like a lot of crazy amount of time went into it. But um, after about a year, we were there. Um, and yeah, I mean, there were constant setbacks, but it wouldn't have been possible with the many people who came to help out. Yeah. And that was sort of what the, the plan was from the start, you know, it's like just 
<laughs> make it about the like the, the people. It's sort of a project for everyone. And what kind of resources did you have? Resources did you have available at the time? Did you have like a mentor for the process, or was it like um, learn as you go? Yeah, like, I definitely kind of had a mentor. Yeah, yeah. So my my stepdad is a boat builder, so that was why that's true. Yeah, it was it was possible. You know, like every um, every setback where I really you know where I was really lost, I could go to him and say like. Um, you know, like what's the best way to remove these skin fittings or what's the best way to, what's the best paint to use or like what's, the, I mean, there were a ton of issues that I sort of need, uh, I didn't need mentoring, but it helped a lot and saved a lot of time. Well, you learned so much. I guess you so stripped much. this 1970s swan back in, from its, back to its like inner shell and then rebuilt her. It would allow you to see the design and the craftsmanship that went into the build in the first place, which is quite nice. Yeah. And it also makes it more personal for you than anything you would buy off the shelf. Um, did you like make any upgrades on it or improvements in preparation for your journey? Lots, lots, yeah. So um, we rebuilt the rudder because the rudder was falling apart. And obviously that's like a really crucial part of it. And um, we had to replace the wires that hold the mast up again because that's super important. Um, and yeah, we basically did everything we could possibly do. Like the there there are still things that are um, like outstanding things to complete. Like I couldn't afford to buy new sails, so we just carried on using the original sails, which are really old. And now it's like a constant battle against tears because they're always ripping so we're Fair constantly enough. sewing um and there i mean there are a few i made a lot of mistakes that, that now i realize that um i mean it's like we all learn from our like mistakes and so forth if anything you know way more about that boat than you would have done if you bought it like just up front if you know what i mean like the inner yeah. workings of it and everything like that which is really yeah. cool yeah and i think i think like if you're young and you want to buy a boat and go sailing, it's like, it's not, I mean, for me, it was, it wasn't really feasible to buy one that was ready. Yeah. <laughs> but you either have to put in a lot of money or a lot of time. Yeah, you know? exactly. Like, that, that was just. <laughs> Those are your weighing yeah. scales, really. Yeah, I think so. So, um, what, so where did you plan to take it? I know you wanted to go around the world, but did, like, how did you pick and plan your route? Um, I mean, the, the plan is still to go around the world and it's basically the, the, the easiest way to do it is the way that we're doing it is in the trade winds, um, which are really convenient northeasterly and southeasterly winds that are just like within, I guess, about 25 degrees north and south of the equator. And they're same direction, same strength pretty much every day. So, um, as soon as you get south from the UK to around the latitude of the Canary Islands, you can pick up the trade winds and then across the Atlantic, through the canal, across the Pacific, um, and then the Indian Ocean and then back up through the Atlantic again. So that's like sort of the rough route that is the pl is planned. But with COVID, yeah, it's difficult. Course. Yeah, <laughs> classic. <laughs> <laughs> At the moment, the Pacific is pretty much closed. Like you can't go to any of those islands. So that's that's sort of why um, I'm here in Colombia for way longer than I would have thought I would have been because um, 
it's a really, I mean, I love it. And I have, I, I, I still have work that I need to do to like yeah. try and fund the trip and it's Keep just, it going. Yeah. Yeah. So how many months have you been out for so far without the hindrance of sort of COVID? Well, until the hindrance of COVID kicked in? Well, I left or we left me, Harry, Lily and Chloe. They're my three friends from Falmouth. We left in January 2020. So like quite not long before COVID started to become apparent as something that was quite a big deal. Yeah, literally <laughs> like cusping it, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And and by the time we got to the Canary Islands, it was like, you couldn't ignore it. And then on the same day that we planned to do the Atlantic, Spain went into lockdown and then we were just stuck there um, in this marina and we weren't allowed off the boat. Super militant style lockdown in the Canary Islands, like really... We were just stuck on the boat basically for two weeks. And then the more research we did, we decided that, I mean, countries were closing borders and it just wasn't, didn't seem like a very responsible thing to do in like a time of crisis to yeah. sail across the Caribbean. So we left the boat for seven months in Tenerife. I imagine it must have been so tempting to just set sail again and having to like, because I guess back then at the start of January, none of us really knew the extent of COVID yet. Um, and I guess also you would be somewhat not in touch with life at home, not really following the news. Were you following the news that much at home or yeah, were you yeah. in your own like happy bubble? We <laughs> you, were, were, you were pretty in touch with it. it. Yeah, a lot. And, and, and I still have this page in my notebook. It's so funny. It's like, we sat down around the table and we, we had three options of what to do <laughs> Yeah, across the Atlantic and then like all the pros and cons. And then the other one was sail back to the UK and all the pros and cons. And then yeah. the third one, fly back to the UK and all yeah. the pros and cons. We, we, it was a proper brainstorming session that we had trying to figure out what Best we would do. Best take. Love it. Yeah. Such um, a difficult decision. <laughs> yeah. I, I imagine that would have been so difficult. Yeah. Literally such a difficult decision. I know early in lockdown, I think it was in like June time, there was a cruise ship full of passengers that weren't allowed to dock because of COVID. And I'm not yeah. sure if it was because of them not being allowed to get in, like, um, get into the like boatyards or if it was passengers on board having tested positive but I remember there being a lot of hype and like drama surrounding the situation it'd be so terrifying especially if say something went wrong with your boat to not then be able to get supplies or um, whatever you needed to fix it or food or even if someone on board was ill so you would be stuck with a really difficult situation yeah yeah totally and um, I mean in hindsight we definitely made the right call it was and, and I, I remember asking a load of my friends for advice because we were so confused and we couldn't decide what to do. And almost, I would say nine out of 10 people told us to leave and get sail, like leave on the Atlantic crossing. Um, it's the perfect time to go sailing. But there were <laughs> literally like one or two people who were like, if I was you, I would just hold back and wait and see how this develops. And then we decided to do that. And yeah, pretty made the right was, decision there. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> oh, it's so yeah. tricky. You said you set off in January, which would have been like the heart of the winter. What was it like setting off in the cold conditions? Um, or being at sea in the cold conditions? 
Well, the first passage was across the Bay of Biscay, which is about, I think it's about 400 miles or 450 miles from Falmouth, where we're from, to Galicia in Spain. And the Bay of Biscay is pretty notorious because the, it has this shelf. I mean, it's a bay, so all the swell is kind of like squeezed into this bay. And then there's this shelf and it just does really horrible things to the sea state. And the first two days were fine. It was cold like really cold because I mean it's January and we're outside in nighttime wearing like I don't know like seven layers and <laughs> two pairs of beanies and like two pairs of gloves and Christ. um and the first two days are fine apart from the cold but then on the third day we got um sort of clipped by the tail end of this weather system and suddenly the sea just stood up and it, it sort of coincided with coming onto the continental shelf off the oceanic shelf. So the, the depth comes from 4,000 meters up to about 200. So, and that does weird things to the swell. So suddenly we have these big breaking waves all around the boat and they're sort of slopping onto the boat and oh. everything like all the, the cockpit <laughs> is full of water. Oh gosh. And yeah, the waves are just tearing over the deck of the boat and it was really cold because you're sat there outside like and it doesn't matter how good your wet weather gear is and ours yeah. wasn't even good anyway it's gonna go through so it's like middle of january out in the north atlantic at night time and it was just it was it was the most difficult sailing experience i've ever had and it was really windy and and harry and chloe who were on board it was their first offshore passage as well so <laughs> like it was just such a baptism of fire <laughs> oh, it's one thing being cold but it's another no yeah it's one thing being cold but it's another thing being cold and wet together oh my god I know it was I, we needed like days to thaw out after that one <laughs> yeah <laughs> gosh going through a storm must be so difficult especially at night what was how did you sort of sail through the night does someone have to stay up and be on watch or like did you take shifts always yeah three three hours on six it depends if there's three or four people but normally it's like three hours on and then six or nine hours off yeah okay um yeah and did the weather and the harsh conditions do anything to expedite wear and tear of elixir and like the boat or were you pretty much were you okay whilst you're out there did you have any sort of technical issues uh well we had the i mean the worst storm that we went through was in the near the canary islands and that was a it was it was different because it was like a weather system that came from the sahara desert gosh <laughs> yeah and it was it started off with really really strong wind like the, the w most wind i've ever seen around 45 to 50 knots and like everything's screaming and um that's terrifying that's yeah. so high gosh i'm here sahara and i think of something <laughs> sunny and it's just not <laughs> yeah it's, it wasn't at all we didn't even <laughs> plan, plan to be out at sea but we were at anchor and then the wind picked up and we tried to move the boat and ended up just getting blown out to sea so wow. i mean we weren't prepared for the, the uh, few days at sea and then yeah the wind was just crazy and all we could do is just run with it and then and then after a few days, we had the Saharan dust that settled on everything, and the you couldn't the, the visibility was basically zero, and there was 
orange dust everywhere and all these strange like desert creatures that had obviously just been blown off the desert <laughs> landing on the boat. Well, what creatures were there? Um, there were these, they're like, I guess they were locusts, like sort of cricket things. And they were all clung to like the rigging. Like there was a load of them all along the backstay. And then there were birds as well and like moths and things that obviously don't belong in the sea. Yeah, it sounds like one of the plague things from uh, the Bible stories when all the locusts came or something like yeah, that. That's so it was scary. scary. <laughs> Did you like befriend them? Um, I, you could stroke the bird. That That's came. amazing. Yeah, you could touch it. It would let you. It would let you touch it. <laughs> what kind of bird um, was it? It was green and like really vibrant. I'm not sure exactly what it was. Did but you get it was pictures? Obvious. Yeah, yeah, Excellent. yeah, yeah. Of course. Gosh, the wildlife, man. Those are not creatures that should have been out to see. They must have been so confused. <laughs> I know, and they must have been really happy to find the boat as well in this. Yeah massive dust cloud <laughs> so take me back to that day where the storm kicked in do you remember where you were when it when it really kicked off like what you were doing at the time yeah i mean um i was asleep i was just asleep and then at four o'clock in the morning the wind picked up and um i went outside and was just instantly terrified by how strong it was and then stayed awake till the sun came up and then wow that was, that was a long night <laughs> yeah and then just we just made the decision that we had to leave and pulled up the anchor and which was really difficult in like 50 knots of wind and then yeah and then tried to sail to lanzarote because this is this is near lanzarote in the canary islands lovely yeah and then didn't that didn't go to plan and then we just, just <laughs> everything needs a plan b you like you can set a plan and agenda, but at the end of the day, when you're playing with the elements, you've got to play ball and be prepared to change course and so forth, don't you? Yeah, and I imagine it's the same. I mean, I've never been skiing, but it must be the same with skiing. You must be yeah. governed by like... <laughs> by the elements, essentially, yeah, totally. yeah for sure. Um, we had a guest on the podcast. It's one of our uh, guests before last, this guy called Tom Grant, who's um, a mountain guide, and he was telling me about how he goes out um, and if he gets caught in the night and so forth and it's a bad storm, he'd literally dig a hole in the snow um, to build like an underground igloo to sleep in because there's just no chance of getting back off the mountain, which like terrifies me to a degree. And I also think it's very clever. It's the same way that you'd be like, okay, we can't sail through this. We've got to drop the anchor and wait, at, like, wait out the storm. It's yeah. a game of waiting it out, I suppose. Yeah, that's exactly what you do on a boat as well. Yeah. So we, we heave too, which is a way of... You, you back the sails and you essentially just park the boat and then you can leave everything and go inside and wait. So in this situation, we hope to and then shut the hatch, shut everything, <laughs> just went inside and just lay in bed. <laughs> it <Gosh. blew> over. <laughs> what goes through your mind in moments like that? Because I imagine your adrenaline must be up quite high, but then the logical thing to do is not go out on the deck or anything. It's literally like hibernate sort of thing. Yeah. Well, in that situation, it was before then all of my sailing experience had been by, by myself. So I was only used to looking out for myself, but yeah. in that situation I had three other people on the boat and I was the, the skipper. So I suddenly had this responsibility and I think my, what was, what was worrying me the most was, making sure that everyone on board is safe. And then, yeah. and then also, then there's like, I knew that there would be much more people like families worrying about 
my friends who had taken on this trip and gotten into this experience. So like suddenly the, and the, your the responsibility, yeah, yeah, the responsibility was just completely different. And it's yeah. a lovely thing and also a terrifying thing at the same time. What do you prefer? Do you prefer traveling alone or with company? Definitely with other people. Yeah. It's been great. Yeah, it's been the the the, the single handed sailing I did before was really nice because um, it people notice your vulnerability and I think they're more open to you. And also you're by yourself, so you have more of a, a motivation to go out and make friends. Um, but with other people, I just think the whole sharing the sailing experience is just amazing. Like it's 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 so cool to to have people come and do yeah. the to, to sail to do a passage and see how how I don't know how how it brings them value and joy and that's really cool. And moments like that really pay tribute to the crew's sort of teamwork and the cooperation to problem solve, get through sort of difficult situations, which is actually, once again, it's such a beautiful thing that sometimes it takes the test to be able to see like how rewarding it is to work together. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Did you have moments where they would be like quite stressful outside and everyone just sort of knows what they have to do? Everyone's like, hands on deck, let's go. And then you're like, okay, cool. You kind of yeah. click together like a little clockwork thing. Totally, totally. Like people, people, my, yeah. In each difficult situation, everyone's come together as a team. And there have been so many, like the, the, not even storms, like um, lightning as well. Lightning's a terrifying thing that we've been dealing with a lot recently because, uh, I mean, what do you do on a sailing boat with this big metal yeah, stick? Yeah, there's nothing. Yeah. yeah. And there's nowhere um, else to go. Like you're literally yeah. on the boat. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally. And then uh, we sailed past Venezuela and got boarded by some, they turned out to be Coast Guards, but initially it was a quite a scary experience because we, I mean, Venezuela, that like the, the, the country's in a economic crisis right now. So like piracy is a real threat and we sailed pretty close to some islands. And then we saw this little open boat skipping out and like, one of the guys had an automatic rifle and it was just like the most terrifying experience ever. And Oh my God. Hid everything in the boat. And then one of the guys came on board and like kind of ordered us into the island. And like, by that point we had sort of figured out that they were like official, but like super official, you know, terrifying. Um, Can you imagine your ship being taken over? (laughs) It was terrifying. (laughs) But in the end we managed to sort of like, we managed to, not not so much talk ourselves out of the situation, but I think we 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 sailed away like a few hours later, and it was okay. Good. We just lost two bottles of gin, and then, oh. and then <laughs> that's that was really sad. That was it. You, <laughs> ide- you ideally want to gain a bottle of gin, not lose a bottle of gin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but um, yeah. Fair it's... enough. That's terrifying. So you set sail through a Saharan dust storm and it kind of reminded me of this strange thing that happened in the UK a few years ago. I think it was in maybe 2017 uh, and the sky turned a really intense orangey red and it was due to a dust storm that blew over from Southern Europe. Mm. And I remember it being quite surreal at the time and also feeling quite apocalyptic. And I wondered, is that what it was like for you and did it affect your ability to navigate? It's just difficult because you can't see anything super difficult to know to um yeah to to know if there's anything around you like other boats and might hit something, I mean, yeah. if you, 
Yeah, when we came into Tenerife, we couldn't see land until we were literally like 100, 200 meters away. No lights or anything. So it made navigation a lot harder. And there's just the added stress of not knowing what's around you. Yeah. It's like when there's big boats and stuff. So yeah, it really, it was, it was definitely a test. Definitely a test. Um, and but yeah, I think, we, uh, yeah, we ha- it was handled it really well and then we arrived in Tenerife and didn't really know where to go so we chose a random marina we don't normally go to marinas but this time we really wanted to just be be safe yeah Yeah. (laughs) cool I tied up the boat off and then um, woke up the next morning really really angry Russian guy and we'd stolen his spot without knowing and he was (laughs) fuming like because he couldn't put his cat around there like banging on the door to, to leave and it was kind of it was strange to go through that experience of like being met with this raging guy at the end of it. But. Fair <laughs> enough. I guess when you're like out at sea and the weather's playing, not playing ball, you think you're safe when you hit land and then you're just like approached with aggression from other humans. You're like, yeah, <laughs> this isn't really what I signed up for, but okay. Oh, I know. <laughs> and throughout yeah. the whole time, like how much contact were you having with home then? Like, were you able to keep them updated on your journey? Um, yeah and like what was the drill there like were you able to report back every day or yeah so I mean when the first time I did the transatlantic crossing it was 2017 and I was 21 and I was by myself so my mum naturally was a bit worried and she bought me this little um satellite messenger thing which I still have and I still use and basically allows anyone to track the boat and we can send messages to anyone or little emails, little, like small ones, you know, like um, 100 characters or so. A little heads um, up to know that I'm alive. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, on, on every time I do a big passage, I'll send someone a little message every couple of days just to tell them that everything's all good. Just tell them what's been going on. Like, yeah. Or dolphins or whatever. Dolphins. <laughs> you know? Wait, oh. Or, beautiful dude yeah tell me about some of the nature the wildlife you saw um like aside from the desert creatures that desert creatures. <laughs> mainly just um i mean there's always seabirds dolphins are really common they come like depending on where you are in the world sometimes they'll be every day um whales as well like we uh especially sailing back from the caribbean to europe you you the sea becomes flat and it's really easy to pop to pick them out because you see there you can see them blowing up you know when they breathe they make these big plumes and that's beautiful you can see their heads poking out of the water um it was it was really special when i was by myself on flying cloud because i, I think you have a much more intimate connection with nature and your surroundings um i mean there's nothing to do out there like well i mean they're sailing there's they're your company though yeah yeah, I mean, it's, it's totally different. Every, every um, all the stress and mental pressures that come with being on land, like from jobs or work or relationships or cars or whatever, they just sort of like cease to exist. And that brings about this really um, deep connection with everything that's going on around you, like with yeah. the ocean and sailing. And I think that's, that's what's addictive. And that's what makes these encounters with animals or um, I don't know, just moments of nature, really intense and like euphoric. Yeah. And we spend so much of our lives surrounded by man-made structures, 
and rigid routines that it's nice to get a break and escape into something more organic and naturally beautiful. We had this one guest who came onto our podcast called Jasmine, who was the youngest female in the world to sail um, solo across the Atlantic Ocean. And she said that on her journey, she came across bioluminescent sea algae. And when she did, she would deliberately row badly and splash around to disturb the algae and make it light up. And apparently it was so beautiful. Yeah, oh, it's it's beautiful <laughs> at times. Yeah, but it, I mean, it has its highs and lows, sailing and rowing. I mean, that must be even more intense. That's really impressive. Like, uh, the highs are so euphoric and you're just in awe of everything around you. But then, like, it's definitely balanced out by these lows where you're battling against the weather. And yeah. I mean, it must be so much more intense with rowing than sailing. Like, that's that's really impressive. Yeah, it's a lot of body strength, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So what was it like being out of touch with society for that length of time? Did you enjoy it or did you what did you miss home? Um, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And it, I think it's kind of addictive. Um, yeah. But the first experience for me was kind of bittersweet because I, I had a really horrific fire two days before I arrived in the Caribbean. And oh I basically arrived in this like crazy state of almost being dead. Um, wow. It was pretty, yeah, it's pretty crazy. So I had two and a half weeks of like, you know, I found my thing. I love this. This is like this crazy euphoric experience of just being by myself in the ocean. And, um, and then at the end I had this really traumatic experience. So, um, I arrived and I'd done it, but I was, you know, I was just like in hospital after this. And, um, and I think, um, it took, yeah, it took a long time to like get over to deal with that initial first crossing and how it almost went really wrong and then make the decision that I wanted to continue to, you know, like take these risks knowing that it like was very, very close to being, um, a disaster. And, but I think I learned a lot from that because it, it helped me deal with the risks and the remoteness and just like the exposure. Um, and yeah, it's, 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 it's difficult at times, but I think, I think as long as you understand everything that's going on and like, um, just make sure that you're prepared for every possible scenario. It's really important, like bridge to cross personally as well. Um, when you just when you experience something quite traumatic and something you absolutely love doing and whether you let that define you or look around it and go it's either going to break you or make you stronger and Mm -hmm. and because what was it like so was the fire on the boat yeah yeah Yeah. okay you were hospitalized so i was two about 200 miles away from the caribbean which is about two days and my cooker exploded and I wasn't wearing any clothes. Oh, I was wearing, I was wearing clothes. I was wearing some trackies. Yeah. So my legs were fine, but everything else got completely like, scolded. Pretty much wow. second degree burns over about 15% of my body. And like 1% is a hand. So it was like 15 hands. Oh my the skin, God. The skin had yeah. come off and it had like revealed, I don't know. It was just nasty yeah i'm so sorry to hear that happen that's terrifying yeah it's it's at the time it was really painful and then i had probably a year of trying to recover from it mentally afterwards and then 
Um, um, but overcoming that was like one of the most, I've never grown so much like in, as in, in that year, because it was like, I came back to the UK in my mind, I'd failed. Like my boat was in the Caribbean and like there were newspapers in, in, in Falmouth with like sailor gets in fire in the middle of like some like wow, headlines, big, headlines. headlines. And I'm just like, it's, and then I was in my mind, I was like, I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's really, it was really hard. I struggled for a long time, like mentally, but I mean, that whole experience set me up for, Leaps I mean, for bounds, this, this trip. Yeah. Out. yeah, it was, it was, it was a massive learning experience. And, and also, um, I'm just going to plug the book real quickly. But <laughs> okay. From that, I discovered what, one of the things that was really helpful for me from, getting over the trauma was cold water swimming. And I was in the, I was back in the UK for a year, um, just healing basically. And, um, I got really into going in the sea and swimming and, um, and I think it's something to do with like that regular process of doing something uncomfortable, just jumping into cold seawater. It really helped with the anxiety that I was having. Um, yeah. And I imagine it was also helpful for your skin. I don't know if that's actually true, but then salt water is good for your skin, isn't it? Definitely. It sort of healed up. And, um, and then, um, yeah, from that, like, I, I think that really helped me progress like the, um, I mean, just, yeah, just, just always doing something that's uncomfortable, always swimming. Like it, it, it's hard to not be present when you're surrounded by freezing cold water and it sort of drags you out of your head and all this stuff that you're worrying about. Like the, for me, it was like, what's everyone thinking about me? I'm covered in scars and I don't want to see my friends or anyone because they're going to be, they're going to bring up this trauma and, um, and trying to recover from it. Yeah. And yeah. And then, I mean, this sort of, um, ignited this other passion and then like fast forward a little bit COVID happened and I came back to the UK with with almost nothing to do and two of my friends Beth and Lydia they sort of had this idea um to promote the mental and physical benefits of cold water swimming in Cornwall and they were looking for a photographer and like someone to help with the copywriting and straight away I was in and um we set up this collaboration, I guess, like a creative collaboration. And, um, we, I mean, they all had very, very similar personal stories of how going in the sea and cold water can help them through adversity, help them with their mental health. And, and then we spent the, the, the lockdown summer writing a wild swimming guide to Cornwall. Um, and, and the, the, the goal is to make these benefits, um, that we all, that helped us so much, the three of us more accessible, I guess. So it's like, you know, there's guy, there's, there's all these different locations in Cornwall, but then there's a lot of other resources like safety information and lots of like research into both the physical and mental health benefits and, um, swim groups that, that you can join around, around, around the, around Cornwall. And, yeah. um, it's like, it started off as something which was, really traumatic for me but then it grew into this amazing project with these with these two friends and um yeah I think it's something something quite nice to come from it something it's actually made it so much more colorful than you ever imagined it would have been way back when when the accident happened so it's actually something beautiful that's come out of it really how, is yeah 
How can people find your book uh, and find out about it online? What are your social media handles and so forth? Wild Swim in Cornwall um, is, yeah, is the, is the, is the book. Uh, or it's, uh, yeah, so that's, you can find us on social media, Wild Swim in Cornwall, no spaces. Um, and then, yeah, we're, the book is available online and in a load of, at the moment we're distributing it to stores in Cornwall, which is what I've been doing Super over exciting. the last few days. Congratulations. Been, <laughs> yeah, I still haven't seen it yet though, because I haven't been back to the UK and um, <laughs> everyone's been like, oh my God, congratulations. <laughs> I just like really, really want to see it, but um, I haven't yet. I'm trying to get, I'm trying to organize a copy being sent to Columbia because yeah, I, I um, yeah. I imagine that's going to be a bit of a, I don't know how long it'll take to get to Colombia, but a bit of a hard task. But yeah. it's cool that it's out there already. Yeah. And, and having Beth and Lydia there as well, it's, it, it would never have worked without, like, we each have our own roles and we each rely on each other for, it's just a really nice creative sort of partnership or collaboration. And it's, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Are they with you now? No. Um, they're in the UK. Beth was on the boat for like a few months in the Caribbean and Lydia is actually planning to do a uh, transatlantic crossing this winter. So maybe we'll see each other that'd be on cool. this side. Yeah. yeah. That'd be awesome. <laughs> yeah. So you've learned yeah. a lot about the power of the ocean. Do you have any mm. key messages you want to share? Um, that's a good question. I think... Um, I think for me, swimming in cold water, I mean, like the, the connection to the ocean thing, it can, it can happen on as part of your daily routine. It's like, a, you know, you can, you can swim every day while swimming and, um, or you can do, you can go along the sailing route, which is when you're spending like three weeks at sea, constantly surrounded by ocean. And I'm, addicted to both I think but I think the connection is um the connection is essentially the same and I feel like it does the same thing to for me for my mental health and um yeah I just um I just want to promote the 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 two as much as possible I think like um with wild swimming like putting a lot of time and effort into creating this resource that's going to help people to um you know to experience the same sort of like benefits that helped me through through a difficult time but also with um untied which is my sailing brand which is a lot about um i guess promoting sailing as this idea of travel sustainable travel like trying to create opportunities for people like um i have like a small network of I mean, there's Elixir and there's and and we're always taking on crew members on Elixir but then there's also other people around in the network and um i i really enjoy you make you know, a lot like, of friends don't you doing it so many friends yeah. and it's 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 nice making those connections like helping other people find passages and um yeah i don't know I, I mean i'm not really sure if that answered that question but <laughs> no, <you're> good. <laughs> tell me tell me more about people you've met is there any notable characters who like have really stood out to you that so many yeah i mean there's there's the friends that were my friends from falmouth who, who, who have left with us and um i mean harry chloe and lily they were the originals and then 
since then people have sort of come and gone and we've act- I've actually I've actually like taken on three strangers now who before I completely didn't know and yeah. each one of them has um just been a, such a amazing experience the first one was this 19 year old guy from Manchester, Matt, who I met in the Canary Islands, and he was working as an au pair for a, a family on a boat. And I just instantly like, because <laughs> I saw this tall, sort of like blonde Mancunian with all these kids like around his ankle, <laughs> like, sort of like trying to entertain them. And, and then in the Caribbean, he did, a, he did a transatlantic crossing as well. And we, we picked him up in the Caribbean and he sailed with us for a bit. And it was just really Amazing. cool to share that experience with him. And then Hana, um, someone who I met through TikTok, weirdly, because we were both <laughs> like sailing videos on TikTok. And, um, That's awesome. And then she came out in Grenada because we, we needed a crew member and she seemed cool. And now we're like super close friends. And then in Curacao, my friend Harry, he left um, and it was me and Hannah and we were looking for a third crew member. And then her friend, Jimena, who's also from LA, came out. So it was for the next part of the journey, I was with two people who I literally only just met. But um, that's awesome. She <laughs> had some really cool experiences. So the, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the characters that have come and gone have been what have really made the trip special. And it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't be possible without, without them because... I mean, one, sailing the boat, two, just maintaining it, and three, it just makes it... It's shared passion amazing. as well, yeah. yeah. I know one of my best friends at the moment is this girl called Lydia, who I met on a holiday over in Canada at Whistler when I was doing my ski instructing course, and we were literally there. I think it was a three... It was a couple-day course, but she was also from the UK, and um, we just met a few times in London. And ever since then, we've been like really good friends. And I like, I love that you meet someone on the other side of the world and you're not there for long, but you stay in contact. And then the next thing you know, yeah, just like yeah, good friends for life, really. I don't know why, but it, 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 maybe it's something to do with being vulnerable, but those connections you form with other people just accelerate so quickly. And now, and yeah, and then you become super close. <laughs> it's cool. Awesome. So tell me, Max, what's the next destination in the pipeline for you? Um, Panama. Yeah, we're going to go through the Panama Canal. Amazing. And yeah, at the moment, we're still trying to figure out how we're going to fund it because it's a bit expensive. But um, after here, yeah, we're, going to, we're sort of going to sail down the coastline of Colombia to Cartagena. And then there's an, a few islands and then across the, the corner of the Caribbean Sea to um to panama and there's a few there's like the sandblast islands and bocas del toro which is great they're always looking for surf as well to go to surf because I, I like to surf we all like to surf so we're always 100 i imagine <laughs> so where's the best surf destination you've hit so far um we found some really good ones and it's a funny one because surfers normally f- are quite secretive about waves but I think with, yeah. <laughs> with waves that you sail to, to it's fine to share them because you sort of know that if anyone else wants to find them they're going to have to sail there as well <laughs> I think it's fair enough but St Vincent has fun waves um, yeah. that, are, that are kind of only really accessible by boat um, in the Grenadines as well uh, we found a few fun ones in Grenada of course the Canary Islands are great um, and 
I mean, most places we've been, we've, we've right. found something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> what else is on your bucket list that you haven't ticked off yet? Um, I think, um, yeah, I mean, the, ones the main the thing is just yeah. completing the trip, really. <laughs> it's like... To, to get back to Falmouth in one piece, I think <laughs> I think that's the main thing, and um, and yeah, that's 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 sort of the goal at the moment. Amazing. How long do you think it will take? I don't know. It's such a mammoth task. It's such a awesome but big. There's a lot of territory to canvas. Yeah. How long do you think, think it will take? A minimum would be maybe two and a half years. Yeah. Okay. And it's. It's, it's you can't think about the whole thing you've got to take it step yeah, by step and, and, and for me I'm like constantly working to fund it and mm. make sure that there's people on board and um, and maintain the boat so it's like it's sort of like a constant thing and keep it like, ticking can't process yeah. like can't think about <laughs> the whole the thing in its entirety it's just step take it step by step that's exciting <laughs> it's so exciting though well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and good luck with your adventures. Thank you so cool, much for joining thanks. me, Max. Can I, can I just plug my yeah. social media? Again? Yeah, 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 uh, go for it. So there, there was, I spoke a bit about the book. Yeah. Also my, um, my, I guess, professional photography and writing page is Untied, which is un.tied. And that's where I share all of uh, the content from the trip. I mean, there's pictures on Instagram and we have... A YouTube channel and um, there's some really great content on TikTok as well. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so what's so, yeah. the accounts for those for TikTok and um, so Instagram and TikTok? I think it's just un.tide. Tide spelled T-I-D-E. Like uh, yeah. And then I think the YouTube channel is untied all one word. Awesome. Cool. Thank you so much. Cool. All right. Really nice to speak to you. Thinking Off Piste is brought to you by Maybe Ski, a Whistler-based adventure ski company creating bucketless ski trips across the globe. If you're looking to get off the beaten track and away from the crowds, head over to maybeski.com to discover what lies beyond your lift pass.